our guests today are Elena Carletti, Paolo Cola, and Stephen Ongina, all experts in finance, economics, and banking, and also occasional collaborators with Me Too on a question that we find really fascinating and are excited to talk about today. And the issue is the pricing of contract terms. In our contracts classes, we, we often talk about how the law tries to improve the informational environment for contracting, to give parties more complete information ex ante. And of course, one reason for that is to allow the parties to allocate and, and price risk. But we're often operating at the level of um, sort of armchair empirical assumptions. I was in grad school in psychology before law school and encountered a, a phrase used by the psychologist Paul Meal, who talked about law and the fireside inductions, the, the notion being that there's sort of an armchair empiricism underlying most of the law. And one aspect of that armchair empiricism is that contract terms actually are priced. But our guests today are experts in assessing that and many other questions empirically. And so we wanted to talk to them today about studying the pricing of contract terms. And because we are interested in sovereign debt markets, much of that discussion will focus on collective action clauses. And so, Elena, I was hoping we could start with you and, and with a sort of informational question. The, the IMF released a big report early in October in preparation for the IMF and World Bank meetings last week. And one of their key policy proposals was the widespread use of CACs, collective action clauses, in sovereign debt instruments. So I was hoping you could introduce us uh, to those contract terms. What are these CACs? So thanks, Matt, for the question. And thanks also for the invitation, also on behalf of all the others, to speak with you today about this topic. So what are CACs? CACs stand for Collective Action Clause. So what does that mean? Differently from the uh, corporate sector where we have a proper bankruptcy procedure and therefore a debtor that is in distress would sit at the table with the creditors and would find an agreement um, or try actually to find an agreement. We don't have anything like that in the sovereign world. So what happens when a sovereign is in distress is that in principle, if there are not this provision, the sovereign should sort of find an agreement with the unanimity of creditors, should convince all the creditors to accept payment changes to the contracts. Collective, and, and therefore, because it has to convince the unanimity of creditors, it's very easy for some of these creditors to say no and therefore be, behave as a holdout. So to stay out of this agreement and don't agree to, to the proposed change uh, by the, government, the sovereign. So collective action clauses try to overcome this problem of holdouts, and therefore they allow for a majority of creditors to vote on modification of the payment obligation of a sovereign bond or a series of bonds in a fashion that buys, binds dissenting creditors. So if the CAC says 75% of creditors can agree to a restructuring of the contract, if 75% agrees, then this applies to the remaining 25% as well. 
So it basically binds the minority that may have not voted in favor of the restructuring. And we, we often teach lending contracts as a sort of tug of war between borrowers and lenders where the borrower wants as much discretion as it can possibly have. Once it gets the money, it doesn't want to have its hands tied in any way. Whereas the lender, once it lends, has nothing to do but worry, I think as as Lee Bukait uh, often says. Um, and so it wants all the covenants it can get to constrain the borrower's behavior. And what was your sense going into the research about where CACs fell on that spectrum? Is this a term that borrowers should be advocating for, that lenders would want, or somewhere in, in the middle? Well, in a way, CACs are something in the middle for the following reason. They entail a trade-off, both for the, cre- for, for the, for the creditors. What is this trade-off? Once the sovereign is in distress, then it is better for the creditors that CACs are there. And the reason for that is that, again, what is the alternative to CACs is having a disorderly restructuring procedure with all the creditors. If the CACs are there, this restructuring process is much faster. So that means that once the sovereign is in distress, the recoveries that can come out of this restructuring are higher with CACs than without. So from this perspective, CACs are a pro-creditor clause because they help the creditors to recover faster and more once the government, the sovereign is in distress. But where does the trade-off come from? The trade-off comes from the fact that by giving the possibility to the sovereign to restructure more easily, CACs are also supposed to give incentives to the sovereign to default more often. So to be more often in distress. So somehow the sovereign would not be pay the same attention as before not being in distress. So the trade-off is sort of between the extent of probability of being in distress, which should be higher with CACs, and therefore against creditors, because they would be more often in a situation of restructuring or distress of the sovereign. And, the one, and on the other hand, an exposed beneficial uh, stage for the creditors because they would be able to recover more. So it's precisely this trade-off between ex-ante probability of distress and exposed recoveries that comes with the CACs. And this is why CACs are somehow in between for creditors, because depending on which of the two effects dominates, they can benefit creditors or damage them. Thank you, Elena. Let, let me sort of simplify this a little bit more and ask a question that uh, even though I've worked with you guys uh, for years now, I'm curious about... and. The question is, and let me ask it to Stephen, since you and I have talked the least about this, is what did you expect uh, to find before we embarked on this project? And just to lay some groundwork, my intuition and the intuition that I teach in my law classes is very simple, which is that if you make, if you reduce people's ability to enforce their contract, then the price will go up. And in the case of a creditor, if I make it harder for the creditor to receive the full payment that they are owed, uh, then the creditor will charge me a higher interest rate. And uh, I think what Elena just answered was that maybe that's not the case. So do you uh, fancy 
economists and uh, sort of think about this basic trade-off differently or, or is this something rather unique? Well, allow me to let, let me start first on a philosophical note, which is that as an empiricist, I, I, I always try to uh, not to have uh, priors about what could be in the data. And, and, and often actually we have plenty theory, you know, pointing in different directions. So every, every data set has then to reveal its secrets uh, independent, if you want, almost from, from expectations, which I, I don't like to have as an empiricist. Having said that, clearly I also had your priors in the sense that and to this extent here is a, a bit of a particular situation, right? Because if you think about what the IMF is actually doing is saying, look, in, in the face of potential problems down the line, maybe it's actually a, a good idea to have this uh, CAC being introduced, which is indeed counterintuitive because you would expect that, well, given that there's all these problems down the line, why would creditors actually be buying into this, right? And so then the intuition that Elena so crisply uh, lay on the table already is, is, is telling us that, well, but in this particular case, there is this trade-off and that, and that trade-off seems to be at least in the data set that we were looking at. The countries that we were studying uh, pointing in a different direction and then for, for, weak, uh, for weak countries, actually, this seems to be beneficial if you want, quote unquote. So let me follow up on that. I so you guys, in some ways, you know, you empiricists, you and Paolo in particular, you found what I think for many of us is, is a counterintuitive result. And you, you found strong results. I'm curious, Paolo, and maybe I can direct this to you since I, you and I have been to places where we've had to present this and I always uh, left the hard questions to you when people would attack, but I, I want your sense of whether people buy the results. I mean, do investors buy, buy this claim that reducing contract rights can sometimes actually be good and improve the quality of your product? Again, thanks, me. So yes, that the meetings where we went to, what was probably harder was rather than to convince investors to convince debt officers and to convince lawyers to some extent that whatever they were drafting was having a price impact as opposed to, to do nothing, which to some, to some lawyers that seemed to be what these CACs were supposed to do, although they drafted these provisions in the contracts. So my sense is that um, probably um, what we were after at the beginning was maybe, let's say, a clause or something that we would not expect to see any effect because of the countries that we were looking at, because to some extent, even though in the cross-section of Eurozone countries, you know, like some are okay, more risky or they have more credit issues than others, at least what the experience about CACs told us so far was mostly based on emerging countries uh, rather than developed countries. So I think that what makes it trickier and probably more interesting for our paper is to show an effect for developed countries as well, which I think, let's say, in light of, let's say, the academic debate was, was probably uh, not so obvious to find over there, I guess. So it's interesting that you point out um, that a key source of resistance here is the resistance from finance ministers and uh, people in debt management offices, as well as lawyers who sort of amusingly 
um, want to pretend that their work doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, another way of putting the assumption that their contract terms are not priced. Um, but um, so that raises the question that, or the objection one often hears that there will be some adverse signaling effect from adopting CACs. And of course, part of your research sheds light on that question. I'm wondering if you um, just want to take a moment to elaborate on your findings and whether they were consistent with your um, your expectations going in, if you had any. Uh, and then I have a, a broader question about um, uh, about empirically assessing contracts. And I, I meant that for Paolo, but... Um, oh, sorry, uh, yes, sorry, I, I didn't know. Who, but anyone, who please feel free. Uh, so, you know, like in uh, living in Italy, uh, there's clearly, you know, like quite some uh, debate, let's say, on the, there was some debate about, let's say, the CACs and the, the role that they serve, as well, let's say, the new enhanced CACs. And... Um, I think many observers, they, they're, they're worried about uh, precisely, let's say, the bad effect, where the bad effect here is on the cost of borrowing of a country that's the largest debtor in Europe. And, um, and, and to some extent, I'd say, debt officers were surprised that, that there was potentially, let's say, a beneficial effect. And... Um, while they were they were probably you know like expecting let's say a detrimental effect to some extent that I think that part of the idea of introducing CACs and the reason why in our country to some extent observers were so against them was the, uh, the the idea that you know like by the fact that you make restructuring easier you make it more likely and and we don't want to signal that and. Um, so I'm not sure this uh, answers exactly your, your question about this. But no, I think I it I, I think it does, and it's by um, your referencing the uh, the situation I was thinking of, where the many Italian politicians and finance and people in the finance ministry were vehemently opposed. It seemed to efforts to strengthen the collective action clause. Um, in in eurozone debt, sort of in a, in a way that was somewhat inexplicable, I think, to people on the outside. I wonder if you can say a little bit about the difficulty in assessing the pricing impact of a contract term, and, and to talk a little bit methodologically about what makes that so challenging. So maybe to to put a little bit of context on the question, it seems to me that. One explanation um, for uh, a finding that CACs have a, a positive pricing consequence, at least for some issuers, is that some countries benefit from demonstrating that they have the sort of institutional capacity to can figure out where the imperfections are in their debt stock and to make improvements. And CACs have often been promoted by crucial official sector players like the IMF. And so adopting the fund's preferred CAC is a sign of official sector engagement. There might be all kinds of positive signals that are being sent, um, maybe that are costly enough to be meaningful by adopting uh, uh, these new clauses. So. If that were the story, then CACs could have a, a 
noticeable pricing impact, but not because of the their properties as contracts. There would be something else going on. So I'm wondering, and um, Stephen or Elena, maybe you have thoughts about this. Um, if you could sort of introduce our listeners a bit to some of the difficulties in teasing out those kinds of competing explanations. Well, well I guess uh, the, the, the challenge is uh, indeed to have, to come up with configurations where there are indeed uh, contracts with that clause and, and otherwise very similar contracts without that clause. And that clearly was the case um, with the introduction of the CACs in, in, in those uh, European countries because they were still outstanding and, and, and still being issued very comparable bonds. And so then one can, by you know, empirical matching techniques, really focus in on that specific difference, which is the, the presence of the CAC or not. Because otherwise, indeed, it, it becomes very difficult to isolate the effect of that specific, specific contract feature, if indeed the story is something at the country level or some other combination of contract features that would be responsible for these pricing outcomes. And so here, we did have a situation where we could actually match out uh, those uh, those uh, similarities, if you want, uh, between all these bonds, and then focus in on that all, only that feature being uh, uh, different within a country. Maybe Eleanor or Paula wants to add something on that. Yeah, if I may, um, I think the Eurocac initiative was a really uh, a great uh, uh, experiment from econometric perspective, because basically starting with the first of January two thousand and thirteen bonds issued by all euro area sovereigns had to incorporate these CACs. And the CACs was the same for all countries. So there was no variation, same percentage of creditors, uh, the majority required for the modifications. It was for bonds issued in any law. So countries could not somehow try to escape this new rule by maybe starting issuing in different, uh, under different uh, laws. So to avoid incorporating the CACs. And as, um, as Stephen was saying, these Euro area countries are countries with abundant sovereign bonds. I mean, the European sovereign debt market is the largest in the world. So this allowed us to use these uh, matching techniques that Stephen was uh, mentioning and the comparing bonds that have been issued after the date of introduction of the Eurocac with very similar bonds issued before the date, but with more or less the same residual maturity as the one just issued after the 1st of January 2013. So we could do a within-country analysis, and this was very special and very important. Tease out the effect of the country. Let me let me follow up for uh, on for any of the three of you, and then then maybe we can go to a break. So I have a, a twofold question. One: How unusual is it to find this kind of a setting where you you have the kind of I don't know if natural experiment is the right word, but the the, the kind of setting that Elena just uh, described. D do you find that commonly in um, the research that you do? Uh, and the second is Europe has had a very powerful institution in the form of the ECB that seems to just shovel uh, truckloads of money into the market 
for at least uh, from an outsider without uh, really paying much attention to what it's buying. And does that uh, contaminate any findings that you might make? So um, maybe uh, I'll ask Paolo first and any of you, either Stephen or Elena, if you want to add to it, and then we'll go to a break. So on the first question, you know, a big chunk of, let's say, empirical research is trying to find a change, let's say, a change in the regulation and, and, and to assess the impact of that regulation. So in this sense, we, we can view, let's say, the paper as there is a plausibly exogenous change in the way in which these contracts work. Let, 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 let's, let's think about what is the effect of this is in terms of yields. Uh, now, in research, not necessarily in, let's say, sovereign, you know, debt arena, uh, clearly you have to find, you know, like this change in regulation has been, you know, plausibly exogenous, which we argue is the case when when we do our paper. So the methodology or, or, or how can I say, uh, evaluating the impact of a change in regulation is reasonably common. Uh, obviously, what makes the, the trick or what makes the paper go above a hurdle is, is to find a clever way to, to assess that the impact is due to the change in the regulation itself, which, which in our paper we, we interpret as, you know, like the change in the clause, so the effect of the clause per se. The question with ECB uh, is that unless, so it is obvious that one can criticize our result if there are good reasons to think that the ECB is only targeting a specific set of bonds, which is either those with the CAC or those with the no CAC. If that is the case, strictly speaking, it is obvious that you know, we are missing a variable here, which is what the ECB is buying. Uh, so it is a, a legitimate criticism. However, strictly speaking, nobody knows uh, which uh, ISIN level, so which tranche the ECB is really buying. So. It's also a claim that's very hard to prove against our result, let's put it that way. And, um, you know, like, I guess that if the ECB, if the policy of ECB is to buy bonds for a given issuer across the ISINs, so without targeting a specific bond, then this would, would not affect our results. So our results would still be there. Uh, Stephen, I, I interrupted you. Uh, no, no, no problem. I was just going to add to Paolo's comments that actually what we have here is, a, is not only a, a quasi-natural experiment, which comes with a, with a high degree of internal validity in terms of identification possibilities, but I think, uh, and a bit unlike a lot of papers, if you want, in other areas out there, there's also a very high external validity in the sense that this was really not... This was common to many countries. This was a, an important clause and an important financial instrument. So to this extent, on both accounts, I think this, uh, this experiment was really worth looking at. I think it's fair to say, and with all due respect, that, that often when we try to go for these experiments that have a very high internal validity, we often struggle a little bit to, to, to make them you know, externally valid enough for, for our readers to, uh, you know, to carry carry these experiments into a top journal. I mean, because, you know, there may be very country-specific or firm-specific changes that are, you know, need to be put into context to then also have a, 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 broader, a broader meaning. Here, this, this, was a, this was a no-brainer given the experiment that we were looking at, very high external validity. 
maybe this is a good time for us to enter our break. And when we come back, we can continue the discussion and maybe broaden it a bit to talk about Venezuela as well. All right, we're back from our break. And uh, now we get to ask the even tougher questions. So uh, Elena, I'm gonna direct this one to you, but maybe maybe Paolo and Steven uh, will step in as well. So in the series of papers that you guys did, and uh, I realize that I'm implicated too, but uh, since I'm the, the lawyer who doesn't understand really anything, uh, I'm gonna pretend that really you guys are responsible for it all. So the question I have is in, some of your papers, uh, specifically the papers that you did on Venezuela, uh, you found that stronger contract terms, meaning contract terms that made it harder to restructure, were actually valued by the market more. Whereas in this it, most recent paper on the Euro area CACs, you find the opposite result. So are you subject to the question, you know, you guys just find whatever's convenient to find at that moment, or maybe one of the results is wrong. Uh, I realize that's an unfair question to ask, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Elena? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of an unfair question, and I would call you responsible for this result as well as we do, as much as we do. But having said that, there is an important difference, or at least there are important differences between Venezuela and the Euro areas. The first one is that Venezuela is a riskier country from a credit risk perspective. So the probability that the sovereign enters into distress is higher than for the Euro area country. I understand we had one of the biggest default, if not the biggest default in Greece in the Euro area, but leaving this aside, I think it's fair to say that Venezuela is riskier than uh, than the Euro, any of the Euro area country, which means the CACs may assume a particular role there because of this closeness, more closeness to, to probability of distress. But the second one is that contract clauses, they have to be respected by courts. And therefore, once the, the distress comes, they have to be uh, followed and courts also have to stand ready to back them. So in that sense, the quality of the law, the quality of, if you want, of institutions in a country also matters a great deal. And here is a, another dimension um, under which uh, Venezuela and the Euro area countries uh, differ quite significantly. So the quality of law is higher on average in the Euro area than I assume it is in Venezuela. And therefore it helps in the CACs to be credible. So the effect that you may find that in Venezuela may be due to lower quality of, uh, of the CACs, um, so therefore an expectation by the creditors that it may not be followed once the stress comes. And also if you remember this trade-off that I tried to uh, highlight at the beginning, this is a country that may take the introduction of the clause as a way to actually default more strategically. And that's another aspect that the creditor may dislike when the pricing the bonds with CACs in Venezuela. So all in all, I wouldn't say the result is wrong, but probably it hints to different reasons as to why the result is different. 
There does seem to be a tension, though, in the sense that, as I understand the prior study involving Venezuelan bonds, they were all subject to New York law, weren't they? Which I would have thought would be the kind of paradigm for a um, strong legal system, at least from a a creditor's perspective. Is there not a, a small tension there? And I have that question. And then I guess I wanted to ask a second one after about differences within Euro area countries. But maybe that one, I don't know, Paolo, is it fair to direct that to you? Or maybe I should direct it to Mitu, since he does bear some responsibility for this. But I'll start, I'll start with, with Paolo. So, okay, so the responsibility on the jurisdiction of the Venezuelan bonds, it's, it's all for me too, but uh, so even if we, to some extent, kill the argument for a bad quality of law, because these bonds are written in U.S. law, so let's say that that is good quality of law, uh, I, I think that there is um, still space for um, a different effect of CACs depending on whether your credit quality deteriorates as it does in the cross-section of countries in Europe, as opposed to what happens when your credit quality is really bad, which is what happened in in Venezuela. So to some extent, I'm I'm open to the possibility that when the crisis gets so close or you're already in the crisis, there might be a different effect there. And the different effect that I have in mind when I think about Venezuela is that, you know, like our analysis of, let's say, yield differentials, essentially the yield differential starts kicking in when Venezuela gets heavily downgraded to B minus and then C. Uh, so strictly speaking, these are credit ratings that we don't observe for our European countries. And, um, and so I think we have to be, post- I mean, to, to, to conjecture that there may be something different uh, the start getting in when you get into the crisis. And this something different might be the uh, clientele of, of, of who is essentially buying these bonds, uh, which is to say it, it might be well different to what, what is the audience and what are the creditors of a country, let's say, outside of a crisis, as opposed to what are the creditors during a crisis. And I do not exclude that the fact that, you know, like these subjects change to some extent, might be responsible of a different pricing path. And uh, if we think that who was buying the Venezuelan bond in order to uh, block, let's say, the possible restructuring or let's say specialized funds, uh, then maybe we may not have these guys as buying Eurozone bonds, at least as of yet. So that might also justify the differential pricing path. For the law details, and it's obviously everything is on me too. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you, before we let me to defend himself, can you say a bit more about, um, so one of the most intriguing, I think, findings of the most recent paper is that the, the difference between CAC and non-CAC bonds widens as the country's legal system grows stronger. Uh, can you say more about that distinction within the context of the the eurozone in part the lawyer in me is giddy with excitement that uh, economists are acknowledging that the law might potentially matter but there's a, a bit of a skeptic uh, in me as well in that it's hard to see what differences there might be between 
know, Ireland on the one hand and Italy on the other, that would be relevant here. So I'm hoping you can say a bit more about that. Um, Paolo or, or maybe Stephen, if you wanted to. Um, so, so to me, the, the example that you make, Ireland versus Italy, is very important because you're comparing two countries that at least during our sample period, they, they, they spent quite some time having the same credit worthiness, which was relatively bad. So um, first of all, when the credit quality is getting worse, that's when, if any, you, you expect to see any effect of these contractual terms. Because if you are a triple, uh, triple A rated country, um, you're sufficiently far from, from default or crisis state such that it's, I think it's fair to say that there should be no difference attached to these uh, contractual provisions. Um, and I guess that, you know, like simply put to answer your question, uh, it may well be that if you, if the issue is a bad quality country like, like Italy, you will, in essence, you may expect the country to do anything not to respect these clauses. Now, what exactly legally, what is the legal space of doing that? I'm not entirely sure, but because, you know, like there, Mitu is the expert here, but if you think about the Greek retrofit, you know, like that is an instance where the legal terms have been changed, exposed. So if that is the case, then, uh, and if you think that Italy is a bad quality country where anything can happen, then obviously you would not expect, let's say, CAC or any other contractual clause to have any effect. On the other hand, when you take Ireland, which according to many of, uh, let's say, these indicators for the quality of law is, is ranking on the good side, you can be fairly sure that that is an issue that, that's going to stand by whatever is written in the contract. Which is why, going back to your question, I think Italy versus Ireland is exactly what is buying us this effect of the CAC provisions in the cross-section of quality of law. So looking at different uh, quality of law indicators. Yeah, and if, if, if I may add to, to, to Paulo's observation there, I mean, there are many, there are a number of other realms where investors could also have deduced that, that some countries are sort of better, if you want, at coming up with ways to evade some of the um, supranational uh, configurations that were set up, just like the, the CAC. So to this extent, the, the investors are not entirely on thin ice here when, when they would suspect that uh, a country like Ireland would not engage in this type of uh, judo, while a country like Italy may uh, sort of involve uh, um, maneuvers to sort of offset when, when, when time is there, uh, how these CACs are supposed to work. Um, there are a number of other domains as well where this has been observed. So can I, can I follow up Stephen and Paolo and I, I'm going to evade uh, taking any responsibility and answering the hard questions, but I thought you guys answered them much better than I could have. So you should be teaching my law classes. But when I ask a question that in a sense was raised by the recent IMF report, which comes in a context of you know, trying to give advice to countries about how to prepare for a possible sort of slew of uh, sovereign defaults. And the, the question is, based on your experience, and you guys have been working on collective action clauses for many years now, apologies for that, but based on your experience with this uh, data and this research, would you advise countries to just 
put in place new collective action clauses and that that would be all that they needed to do if you know they're trying to a prepare for possible defaults and make restructurings more orderly uh, and also then get some of the uh, price benefit that you guys say uh, they might get and or should they also be uh, improving their legal systems i mean sort of what is the what is the policy recommendation if any and i realize that you are all very careful about making policy recommendations uh, but if i pushed you to speak at an IMF meeting to tell countries what they should do. Would you say just improve your CACs or just use more CACs? Or would you also say something about uh, their legal systems? Stephen, Paolo? So our paper says that using CACs or better CACs or decreasing the threshold cannot harm you. This I think is the, the first upshot. It cannot harm you in terms of the cost of debt, obviously. And uh, and I think that you know like the second let's say finding there is that if your legal system is good, it can also make things better for you in terms of decreasing the cost of debt. So answering your question in short, I, the paper literally says throwing their cacks cannot be detrimental. If any, it can be beneficial, and it would be more beneficial if your legal system is a good one. Now, obviously, the policy implication here is how do you improve your legal system? And this I leave it to you. Yeah, if I may add, so, maybe that IMF uh, recommendation probably also needs to be seen in terms of potentially not singular countries imposing CACs, but sort of seeking, you know, if you want the strength also in the collectivity and maybe also in the supranational possibilities that there are to then also make sure that these CACs are properly executed when it, when it comes to it. I, I think to this extent, maybe clearly strengthening legal systems could also imply almost importing some of that strength from some of these supranational uh, institutions. If I, if I still may add the one, one word on this topic, I think our paper clearly says what uh, Paul and Stephen have already said, meaning that the quality of law is important. But, uh, and uh, in a way, I went a bit beyond with the Venezuela. If we think of countries like Venezuela, uh, that indeed issue mostly under foreign law, if not exclusively, what also our paper tells you is that it has to be that countries do not default strategically. So for given the quality of law, even if they issue under foreign law, they, they, their behavior has to be in a way controlled in that they don't use the CACs as a way to increase significantly the strategic default attitude. Because if they do that, then this can play against them in terms of higher cost of debt once CACs are introduced or strengthened. If I can sneak one more question in before we, we let you go. You've been so generous with your time already. Uh, and maybe a slightly unfair Question two, if I may, since since Me Too began with the unfair questions, I, I feel I have some license. Um, but we want to ask about Italy, I think. Certainly I do. There are all kinds of sort of perplexing and contradictory signals, starting with the fact that Italy seems to be able to borrow at essentially 0% interest these days. And yet the economic picture in other respects 
is incredibly gloomy, isn't it? Debt is going up, the pandemic is still here, tourism is down. What do you think is, is happening? Are we in a just a time of permanently cheap credit? Or should we be worried about Italy in particular in the coming months and years? Um, and in no particular order, maybe I'll um, ask Elena if she has thoughts on that first. Yes, so the discussion on Italy has been going on between me and I since I've known him, which is probably more than 10 years now. So we recurrently touch upon Italy and uh, the difficulty that uh, it is together with the sovereign debt in Italy. So why do you see these discrepancies? I think there are various uh, reasons for that. The first one is, you're right, the, I mean, of course, the pandemic has, uh, I mean, has entailed a big uh, drop in the GDP and the recessions. But if you look, at, for example, at the results in the third quarter, Italy has been doing better than France, Spain, and possibly even Germany. So although, of course, the decline in GDP will be significant, the last quarter has uh, somehow brought back some optimism. And this, is, this may have contributed to this decrease in um, in yields and the possibility to issue bonds at a very low rate recently. Second, yes, the debt is staggering. Is the, I, I think the forecasts are projecting something like debt to GDP about 160% this year. So of course, this is a huge number. And this should bring back uh, worries about the possibility of Italy not to default. But on the other hand, I think with the pandemic, there is an important change across Europe. And not only because the ECB is buying bonds and is buying more than before with the new programs, but also because Europe from a fiscal perspective has become more integrated. And this comes with the next generation EU plan and with other measures that the Commission and the member states have recently adopted. And I think this is what is bringing down massively the, the spread at the moment, is the fact that maybe investors are, are starting to see Italy not anymore in isolation as a country, but as backed by Europe. And then the fiscal space is completely different. So um, Paolo and Stephen, uh, just to build a little bit on Elena's answer, but to be a tiny bit uh, cynical, is what Elena was saying that basically the... European authorities are now going to backstop Italy for time immemorial, you know, bailouts for everyone for ev all time to come. Is this that is not, this market? is not what I said, Mito, by the way. I know. But I let the others reply. <laughs> this is not what I meant. In my view, I mean, like if investors are, you know, like lending money to Italy with a zero rate, no matter what are the current prospects of the country. It is obvious that given the current, uh, let's say, stock of debt, when you want to look at it in absolute terms, only in relative terms to GDP, there must be some thoughts of either, you know, like a fast and very fast and better than the other countries' recovery, or as you are suggesting, let's say that the ECB is going to help. So, truth being told, you know, like I think that both the explanations are plausible. They may be both. Uh, playing right now, I guess that in order to understand which which of these is the correct, which of these expectations turns out to be the correct one, we have to wait, you know, like two three more years and then see. <laughs> um, 
I may add, of course, we know that sometimes investors are overly optimistic, overly pessimistic. I mean, there may be a bit of that as well, right? So there may be a bit of excess optimism right now about all of this uh, going forward, also in terms of economic recovery, possibilities at ECB, also the, the commission have um, generated. But at some point, of course, the reckoning may come. So, so I, I think there may be a bit of overly optimism on this account. Well, if it is overly optimistic, then maybe we'll get to see how the CACs are actually used. And that would be an exciting new natural experiment, maybe. But, uh, and that is, um, for a pessimist like me, that's a kind of an optimistic uh, perspective. Uh, uh, you know, defaults are terrible, but maybe defaults are good. They give us natural experiments. So thank you guys so very much uh, for taking so much time. And I know that it's late night for you in Europe, uh, but th this has been a special treat. So thank you guys. Uh, thank again. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.